From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Today we spend the hour discussing the violent conflict between two powerful forces in Sudan. The clashes between Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces have spread to different regions in the country, creating a humanitarian crisis of immense proportions and turning the capital, Khartoum, into a war zone with millions of innocent civilians caught in the middle. Hundreds have died and tens of thousands of Sudanese are fleeing to neighboring countries to escape the violence. Shahram Agamir spoke with Professor Khaled Madani about the unfolding crisis in Sudan. Dr. Madani is an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies and chair of the African Studies program at McGill University in Canada. He's the author of Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa. The concern of the majority of Sudanese is the humanitarian crisis. When it began on April 15th, the targets on the part of the army were, of course, the national airport, the airport north, Medawi, in the northern state, and the army headquarters in the central part of the city. That was the target of the army. The idea was to target the kind of centers of transportation and logistics and intelligence and command and control of um, the rapid support forces, the paramilitary militia headed by Mohammed Hamdan de Gallo, known as Hemeti. But following that, very quickly, in the course of two days, it has expanded throughout the city or expanded throughout the city. And that is a result of the fact that uh, the militias are and their bases are in the central parts of the city and different t- neighborhoods as well. And so as the army began to bomb uh, their bases further into the city, it expanded throughout all of the neighborhoods in the greater Khartoum area. In um, North Khartoum, what we call Bahri, Umdurman, across the Nile River and Khartoum proper itself. So it's expanded in the city. There's also a great deal of conflict in Niala, southern Darfur, also perpetuated by the militias against um, local insurgency against them that wants to expel them from uh, southern Darfur. And also in parts of uh, Port Sudan, there were skirmishes. But at the very heart of it, it is really an unprecedented uh, spate of violence in the capital city that has never happened before in the history of Sudan. The result has been not only upwards of 500, probably more, uh, civilians who've been killed in the crossfire, but very crucially and tragically, the extreme shortage of basic uh, supplies, electricity, food, water. And over the course of uh, this conflict in the city, now the humanitarian crisis compounded by the absence of uh, cash, uh, the inability to buy food, even if it is available. And this has led uh, people who had considered staying, despite the the violence in terms of the military conflict in the city, it's uh, convinced them many to try to flee outside of Khartoum, either to, uh, north towards Egypt, east towards Ethiopia, or west towards Chad. And even there are approximately 4,000 refugees on the border of South Sudan. So it's a very deep humanitarian crisis, frankly, unprecedented in terms of how it has impacted the very infrastructure of the capital city that houses upwards of um, maybe 8 million people. The truth is important in two ways. This one that was brokered by Saudi Arabia and the United States uh, was not so much held, but there was a lull in the fighting in certain neighborhoods, allowing for the Americans in particular to evacuate uh, their 
essential personnel and some of their citizens in addition to other countries as well, like the United Kingdom or Britain. But that lull has quickly evaporated as the fighting now continues um, and gets even stronger in terms of the street battles. The reason there was a lull was because both generals, Burhan and Hemeti, both soldiers, uh, wanted to gesture to the international community that uh, they were actually reliable partners to them. In other words, to generate some kind of favor from the powerful actors such as the United States. But for me, what it also demonstrates is that these two generals are not um, immune to pressures from the outside. And it also indicates that both parties are really being damaged in terms of their own resources in ways that signal that there may be increasingly a military stalemate in the city, despite what each general says that they are just on the brink of an outright military victory. Khaled, since the 2021 coup, Sudan has been run by a military junta led by uh, General Burhan, the head of armed forces, and in effect, uh, the country's president. And you mentioned also his de facto deputy, Hemeti, General Hemeti, who is the leader of a paramilitary force called the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. It appears that tensions between Sudan's regular army and the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, had been simmering for months. The current political crisis in Sudan and the fighting can be actually traced back to the 2018 2019 uprising that brought an end to the near three-decade rule of Omar al-Bashir. Can you walk us through this revolutionary upheaval and what ensued the removal of Omar al-Bashir as a backdrop to the current military conflict? Absolutely. I think that uh, few journalists actually return to that important period right after the revolution or during the revolution, in particular, the ouster of Omar Bashir on April 11, 2019. That ouster was made possible first and foremost by, of course, the activism and the revolution, the youth and uh, all of the Sudanese who protested for upwards of six to eight months until Bashir was ousted. Uh, the strength and resiliency of the revolutionary activist was the main reason for his ouster or to pressure Bashir out of power. But it was really made possible by the alliance at that time between Emekti and Burhan. Burhan, who was a member of the Security Intelligence Committee appointed by Bashir in the top brass of the armed forces, all members historically of the National Congress Party of Bashir, was really at that time, of course, headed by General Ibn Uf. And there was a coup that occurred, if you will recall, that is the ouster of Ibn Uf. He was initially selected to take over from Bashir, but both uh, Burhan and Hemeti conspired actually to oust him based on an agreement that Hemeti would retain autonomy of, over his paramilitary forces and Burhan would continue or would take over leadership of the National Standing Army. That's an important point because it's actually the first coup, an internal coup that occurred against Bashir in this instance. And that is uh, extremely important. That kind of alliance is uh, what uh, made them also conspire uh, to expel and kill the activists in the sit-in in June of 2019. 
that horrible massacre that continues to be so important for the majority of Sudanese in terms of their demands and the demands of the revolution for justice was pivotal. And it um, also demonstrates the extent to which their alliance was very, very strong during that period. They continued that alliance through the transitional government that was established in August 2019, that fragile coalition uh, between the civilian uh, leaders and the military headed by Burhan, that you will recall, was extremely fragile and eventually appointed Abdullah Hamdok as the prime minister. So all along, there was a convenient a marriage of convenience and practicality and pragmatism and uh, a real cooperation based on the autonomy given to Hemeti as, as the leader of the paramilitary forces. In fact, Burhan allowed Hemeti to mobilize more troops into the capital city, a uh, harbinger of, uh, of this tragedy that uh, was to come. The balance between uh, these two generals, the head of the army and his deputy, Hemeti, in the Transitional Military Council, was um, also emboldened and strengthened by the Juba Agreement that occurred um, later um, in October following that government. That becomes important here. The compromise uh, during the period of Hamdok's uh, prime ministership was to bring in two uh, rebel organizations, the Justice and Equality Movement, headed by uh, Jibril, and the Sudan Liberation Army headed by Minawi. Uh, and these are uh, two uh, basically insurgent organizations that were brought in at the behest of both Burhan and Hemeti in order to outbid and undermine the civilian politicians. That is to strengthen the balance in a new coalition government that would give more power to uh, military forces and undermine the civilians in that coalition. So that's an important aspect of uh, understanding the background that uh, to the October 2021 military coup. At that point, it was clear to both Burhan and Hemeti that uh, it was essential for them to wage a coup in order to consolidate their power. What they did not expect following the October 2021 coup was that the Sudanese people would not only continue to protest in Khartoum and elsewhere on a regular basis, but on a daily basis. It is at that period that you saw both of them once again conspire to put down the resistance of the resistance committees, the youth, and all of the activists uh, across Khartoum and elsewhere that took to the streets. Because of the pressure of uh, the resistance committees and the population at large, once again, they were forced to compromise, so to speak, under the auspices of the international community and work out what became the catalyst of this tragic, unprecedented conflict in Khartoum, and that is the negotiations around uh, what is called the framework agreement. The framework agreement was supposed to iron out certain issues, first of all, of course, to restart negotiations uh, between the military and civilians towards a transition to a civilian democracy, and in doing so, iron out some very important issues. And the negotiations were essentially conducted uh, by Burhan, Emeti, and um, the Forces of Freedom of Change Central Council. This is the original Forces of Freedom of Change that participated centrally in the revolution of 2019. This is extremely important to understand because it helps us understand how and why, uh, after decades of cooperation between Burhan and Hemeti, their relationship goes back a long way since both of them put down uh, the insurgency in Darfur, killing upwards of 200,000. Both of them have uh, had very close economic cooperation over not only 
commodities in Sudan and their smuggling abroad, but also gold. And both of them, of course, participated in sending mercenaries to Yemen to help in the war there conducted by Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. Their cooperation has been historically very deep. The question then becomes why and how did this conflict emerge? And I would um, venture to say, and most, of course, would agree that the framework agreement was uh, really the catalyst. And in particular, a number of issues that were deferred to the future. These included issues of the security sector reform, that is the integration of the paramilitary militia into the standing army. It included stipulations on uh, deliberations over transitional justice, that is accountability, uh, not only for that war, but also for the massacres against the pro-democracy activists. And uh, crucially and importantly, of course, discussions and deliberations over dismantling the huge uh, economic power, not only of uh, Burhan and the Islamists and former members of the National Congress Party uh, that command upwards of 60% of uh, domestic economy, most of it, of course, linked to the military itself, and of course, the vast wealth in gold and real estate and commodity smuggling of Hebeti himself. These uh, crucial uh, issues, without which there can be no transition really to civilian democracy, were, believe it or not, deferred. The agreement in the first phase was uh, signed on December 5th, 2022. And remarkably and fatally, the issues that I just mentioned that are so central were deferred to a later date. That is phase two that was supposed to be signed on April 1st, and then that was extended to April 6th, and it was, of course, never signed. The catalyst uh, was not only differences between these two generals, but also, of course, a huge debate and disagreement, rather, over the integration of the paramilitary militia into the standing army. On the one hand, Burhan and the armed forces, at least the top brass, wanted the integration to occur very quickly in the course of two years. Hemeti, who had essentially signed on in partnership with Burhan following the revolution, insisted on continuing the autonomy of um, paramilitary forces and, of course, his own leadership of that, uh, which uh, becomes really the very important catalyst of the conflict to come. And the reason for that is that there was a structural problem here, not only a personal kind of uh, competition between these two generals, as is often said in the news. The structural problem was that the framework agreement stipulated that they would be, in short, civilian uh, prime minister who would have oversight over defense and security council headed by Burhan, who would not participate in politics, and uh, that Hemeti would also have autonomy and, and be under the oversight of a civilian prime minister appointed by the forces of freedom of change. The problem with that from the perspective of both these uh, soldiers or generals was that um, it would give Hemeti essentially autonomy to still have an armed force. Uh, that, of course, would mean that there would be essentially two channels of command and control. From the perspective of Burhan and his allies at the top brass, this was unacceptable because it would mean that their power would be completely diminished or competed with by this paramilitary force. And the calculation on the part of Burhan, but more so Shamsuddin Kabashi, his deputy at the moment, uh, was that uh, the only option was to break this long-standing partnership and compromise with Hemeti, the force that they themselves had forged and created, and to try to eliminate him through military means in what they perceived to be a zero-sum game. That is, completely destroy his forces and even capture him and 
perhaps uh, execute him and consolidate the army under the leadership of Burhan and his allies towards uh, going forward to control not only the military, but to reestablish the same kind of regime established under the National Congress Party. So that is really the catalyst of the conflict um, that we are seeing today. On this question of parallel security organs or, mili- or military organs, fearful of being unseated by a military coup, Omar al-Bashir had actually created multiple security organs, organs that would compete with the army. National Intelligence and Security Service, NISS, and Rapid Support Forces, RSF, are two of such organs. Every one of these coercive organs constructed its own economic empire, sort of established their own sovereignty, if you like. For instance, the Sudanese military ran construction firms, mining services, and banks, while the RSF took control of gold mining and mercenary services. What can you tell us about this structuring of the regime's security and military apparatus and the emergence of RSF as a powerful body within Sudan's coercive apparatus? Well, you're absolutely right. There are a number of pillars of the Bashir regime when he took over power in 1989, the Islamist authoritarian regime of the National Congress Party. One of them was to make sure that they dominate the banking system and all of the assets as much as they can, and they managed to do that. And you highlighted some of the sectors of the economy they dominate. Another aspect with security sector, let's just say the factionalization of the security sector, uh, chief among that was initially was the establishment of the popular defense forces, the PDF, that were essentially militias controlled by the Islamist regime and the National Congress Party. The other one was the infamous National Intelligence and Security Services that was in charge of um, uh, surveillance, intelligence, and repression uh, domestically. And of course, by uh, 2013, uh, Bashir establishes uh, incorporation, of course, with Hemeti, the Rapid Support Forces. And the reason for that, as you mentioned, are two. One of them is coup-proofing as uh, analysts like to say, and that is to undermine the authority and power of the national army and make sure that he has these militias factionalized in ways that would prevent a coup against him because Sudan has experienced the greatest number of coup attempts in Africa. But the other one was really to also, and this is key, to utilize them to suppress dissent. Uh, dissent in that war against the population that rose up against uh, that war and against the central government. That was really key. And the result was, of course, the killing of over 200,000 civilians. And very importantly, people often don't uh, focus on also to really make sure to repress popular dissent in Khartoum in particular, because many protests have overthrown regimes in the past. I think that that is really, really crucial. That leads us to the economic interests of uh, both uh, Burhan and top brass linked to the National Congress Party. As you said, they have great interest in terms of all of these assets that they built over 30 years. And Himeti has, of course, his assets in the gold smuggling trade, which becomes really important. The framework agreement, therefore, threatened uh, both of them. And this is why Sudanese analysts and Sudanese, and especially the resistance committees, from the beginning refused to engage and participate in the framework agreement. From their perspective, they were convinced that given the economic interest of both parties, because of exclusionary nature of the framework agreement was central to its failure, and particularly the absence and the refusal on the part of the resistance committees to participate in the framework agreement. Their slogan, 
from the beginning has been very famously in Sudan, no partnership, no negotiation, no legitimacy. Unfortunately for Sudan, no one heeded that slogan enough to understand the resistance committees were making a very historically grounded argument. Number one, they were convinced these generals because of the assets and the economic interests that they had amassed over all these three decades would refuse to actually negotiate their dismantling of these assets in ways that would actually promote the economic well-being of the Sunnis people and get Sudan out of a deep economic crisis. Another aspect was not just about um, the security sector reform that I spoke about, but issues of transitional justice. It was clear to the resistance committees that one of the main reasons that uh, both parties, both Himeti and Burhan, even uh, made gestures towards a transition to civilian democracy and engaged in negotiations of the framework agreement was to avoid accountability. That was really crucial. In fact, Himeti and the real conflict, the background to their differences has to do very much following the October 2021 coup. When Himeti, surprisingly so to some, starts talking about his real passion, not only for democracy, but also criticizing Burhan and stating publicly several times that the coup was a huge mistake. That was Himeti trying to ingratiate himself to the civilian population, and in particular, rehabilitate himself as, believe it or not, a Democrat. That was uh, number one for him to avoid accountability that was so central to the framework agreement for his crimes, let's say, in Darfur and also in the sitting. That was extremely important aspect. Another is that he felt that the more he got closer and allied with the forces of freedom of change, the civilian politicians, that he would eventually undermine the power and influence of Burhan and the army. His goal, by the way, was to ally himself with the civilian politicians, agree to the framework agreement, eventually, believe it or not, manipulate the transition to civilian mm -hmm. democracy and find himself president of Sudan. This was not lost from Burhan and his allies, the former members of the National Congress Party. They realized that there was a balance, a structural imbalance occurring, that their longtime ally was essentially allying himself with civilians. And this is one of the reasons that they were very much concerned from the beginning, even before the dispute around the integration of the paramilitary militia occurred. So what I'm trying to emphasize here is the framework agreement and how the two actors manipulated it under the auspices of the international community began to tip the balance away from Burhan and the military towards Hemeti himself. If you add to that the dispute, Hemeti's refusal to integrate his paramilitary militia, you can get the full story and the context of why Burhan and particularly his allies in Security Intelligence Committee decided that for them, it was an existential decision that they had to make. In other words, they had to make a decision to eliminate him, which is really a crucial part of this understanding of the causes and the timing of this horrible conflict. The RSF leader, General Hemeti, has been saying that General Burhan's government is populated by radical Islamists. Also, a recent statement by the Forces of Freedom and Change, and this is in quotation, this war which is ignited by the ousted regime will lead the country to collapse. And that's the end of quote. Even though the party was banned in 2019, it seems like members of the Islamist National Congress Party, NCP, which rules Sudan under Omar al-Bashir, are back 
in the state apparatus teaming up with General Burhan to regain power. What do we know about this disturbing development? Yes, that is a central question. There's a confusion about it because on the one hand, I think it's clear for those not familiar with Sudan, Hemeti is, of course, accusing Burhan and his camp of being the former Islamist and radical Islamist at that. Uh, that, of course, is to gesture to the international community to support him because, of course, there's international campaign against Islamist militancy. It also, of course, is a way to kind of pressure the United Arab Emirates to increase their support for him diplomatically and in other ways, including financially, because both the United Arab Emirates and, of course, also Saudi Arabia have taken a very strong position in terms of being opposed to Islamist presence in the region. The truth of the matter is that, of course, Hemeti had conspired not only militarily, but financially with the same members of the National Congress Party that now he calls Islamist. The truth of the matter is that absolutely members of the former National Congress Party that formed in the context of the Islamist movement in Sudan are part and parcel of the constituency, or rather the group that's supporting Burhan. And the reason for that is that uh, Abdul uh, Fatke Burhan has not been able to expand his constituency and even find legitimacy in Sudanese civil society. You will recall that following the coup of October 2021, he did attempt to elicit support from a variety of different civil society forces, and he was not able to form a government, I think, for about 14 months. No government was formed until this conflict. Uh, what he resorted to was to return to his, what we call Hadina, his camp, his base of support that he had relied on historically. And he began to reappoint members of the National Congress Party back into the bureaucracy, which is really crucial, and emboldened them in terms of supporting him in this particular conflict. That is in the absence of any popularity or legitimacy in Sudanese civil society. And because of the way that the framework agreement was framed and the fear on the part of Burhan and his allies that there would be an alliance between Hemeti and the forces of freedom of change, the civilians, he probably partially reluctantly decided to swing back and rely on members of the uh, former National Congress parties. Opportunistically as ever, the former members of the National Congress party uh, have played a role in designing and planning and justifying and rationalizing this conflict. The Islamist movement is not as strong as it used to be, but the remnants, the members of the former National Congress parties as represented in the top brass of the military is a crucial aspect of this conflict. And that's why Sudanese, it may be confusing to casual observers, Sudanese uh, both uh, critique and criticize and despise Hemeti for his actions and his history, but they also are very cautious because they understand that the only base of support that is supporting Burhan right now, the strongest one, are remnants of the National Congress Party who happen to be Islamist. They are, of course, interested in a military victory to return to power. And more importantly, they have historically, since the revolution, been absolutely concerned deeply about the dismantling of their vast fortunes and institutions that they built at the behest and incorporation and in, and in partnership with the top military establishment. And this is why it may appear complicated, but if you understand the history of the National Congress Party and the legacies of both forming militias and at the same time dominating the domestic economy, you can understand why Sudanese are not only critical, but very much opposed to the agendas of both of these generals. Khaled, Sudan's once notorious secret police, the NISS that you talked about earlier, was presumably dissolved after the ousting of Omar al-Bashir in April 2019. 
But there are alarming reports suggesting that the General Intelligence Service, GIS, which was supposed to replace the NISS, may simply be the latest incarnation of it. Perhaps even some of the cadres of the old organization are integrated into this new intelligence body. Is that a fair assessment? Um, yes, it's a fair assessment. There is a mutation, so to speak. Salah Ghosh, the former head under Bashir and very infamous uh, Salah Ghosh, who's the head of the, of the National Intelligence and Security Services, continues to make statements in support of Burhan. And there are shadow brigades that were established under Bashir by the Islamists themselves linked to the National Intelligence and Security Service. Uh, there is uh, strong evidence that they're participating as foot soldiers in these battles in Khartoum. In other words, aerial bombardments, of course, are done by jet planes and by the army. But uh, that does not, of course, explain the street battles between the militias and uh, those linked to the armed forces. And there is strong evidence, at least from Sudanese in Khartoum, that uh, these shadow brigades or different uh, mutations of them, but certainly the same cadres are involved in kind of creating chaos on purpose in order to, uh, first of all, uh, demonize and delegitimize the militias. And at the same time, chaos and the establishment of chaos in Khartoum would justify the army not only eliminating their rivals, but taking full control of Khartoum and the state that is claiming, as Bashir often liked to claim, that without me, the country will fall apart, even though it's fragmenting and falling apart at the moment. The design, the calculations are clearly coming from people like Salah Ghosh and others. Uh, the statements are clear. The plans are clear. So I don't think that that is a mystery to Sudanese. That is extremely important to highlight. The question is, to what extent are there divisions within the armed forces? There's no question that the influence of the former members and Islamists of the National Congress parties are present in the regime at the top level. But the question that needs to be researched or perhaps really looked out for is the divisions or members of the armed forces that are actually opposed to the agenda of uh, this Islamist element. There is often talk of Burhan being basically a puppet and the possibility of him being displaced once a military victory is occurred. I wouldn't be surprised if that occurred, either by uh, internal coup yet again of um, Islamist-inclined soldiers or soldiers who are actually opposed to the Islamist cadre in the military and the security apparatus. I know it sounds complicated, but it's not as complicated as it seems because the history recently and for a long time in Sudan has been one of internal coups within the military establishment that have made all the difference. And most importantly, if you don't mind me emphasizing, the reason that the politics is so centered around these military elites is because of the fact that uh, they do not have a constituency in civil society. All the previous coups, including that of Bashir in 1989, had ideological and they had some support in civil society. Therefore, they actually secured some semblance of non-democratic stability. In this case, what is different in Sudanese history at the moment is that the infighting within the military establishment is primarily a result of the fact that they do not have a social base. And as you probably know, even the most authoritarian dictators have to have some kind of social base in civil society. Absent that, what we're seeing, unfortunately, for the Sudanese people and all of us, is this infighting between different stripes and agendas within the military establishment in itself, not only between the National Army and the 
Hermeti and his militia, but within the military establishment, the army itself. And that is going to determine the course of this conflict. And of course, chiefly, it's going to determine for Sudanese, will there be a possibility in the future for a weakened armed forces, or rather, let's say, military forces in, in politics that would ensure that there would continue to be possibility for a transition to civilian democracy. Will these two forces be weakened enough that would allow eventually some kind of not only resolution to the conflict, but also a transition different this time with two civilian democracies? And that's Professor Khaled Madani speaking with Shahram Agamir about the unfolding crisis in Sudan. We will hear more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. interesting argument about this notion of weak state in Sudan. This is in your most recent work entitled Black Markets and Militants Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa. And this weak state has become even weaker in the aftermath of Bashir's removal and the subsequent October 2021 coup. And given what you said, that there were these daily protests against the coup, against the military regime, in Sudan, it's almost as if prior to this armed conflict, Sudan had entered a state of permanent crisis and the military had to look for an exit strategy. Perhaps this framework agreement offered this sort of exit strategy to the military, letting the civilian factions shoulder the burden of this crisis. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's a very good question. Thank you for uh, noting my book. It does, of course, describe the, the process of factualization of the security sector reform and uh, its relationship to the revolution. I hope people find it of interest. But I think your question is really important in the sense that there are two options associated with the weak state in Sudan on the part of the military establishment, Burhan in particular. And that is, on one level, they sought to solve this uh, problem of the weak state, weak institutions, a military that's not legitimate, and a very strong civil society wanting democracy. They sought to do it through reform. That is a kind of a managed reform where they participate in a framework agreement and even in a government with, you know, kind of a weakened uh, prime minister from the civilian wing, a civilian prime minister that is nevertheless weak in comparison to their own strength. And that was a plan A in order to manage and maintain their power in politics and the economy. Once that fell apart, as we have described, as a result of 
the problems with the framework agreement. I want to add that a central issue of the framework agreement was not only issues of procedure and deferring of contentious issues, but it was also the purposeful exclusion of legitimate forces in Sudanese civil society that would undermine their own management of this transition. And so that was plan A, so to speak. When that fell apart, as we described, plan B, unfortunately, became one of a military solution. And that is to basically do what occurred in 1989, and that is absent any kind of willingness for political reform, and also understanding that that would not be possible because of the machinations from their perspective of Hemeti and forces of freedom of change central council, that the military solution would be the only one viable. And here, I would like to emphasize that what we're seeing on the ground, Shahram, is not only a battle between these two militias, or rather military forces. We're seeing tragically, and this is why for us Sudanese it's so difficult, we're seeing the purposeful expulsion of Sudanese people. And what I mean by that is that we're seeing a military institution or top brass of the military who are so venal and so avarice in terms of their ambitions, political and economic, that they are threatened by their own population because their own population is actually a strong civil society insistent on uh, their revolutionary objectives and democracy. One solution is military to defeat Hemeti. Another is to expel tens of thousands of Sudanese from the capital, all of whom, without exception, were supporting the revolution. So here I want you to understand the severity and tragedy and also the Machiavellian nature of uh, these generals, not only in terms of destroying the infrastructure in their attempts to defeat, let's say, Hemeti and vice versa, but also to oversee the expulsion of their own population. Absolutely unprecedented in Sunni's history. Uh, of course, it's replicated. A Sunni scholar friend said to me, it's like the banality of evil in this particular case. And it's only in this particular interview that I've mentioned that military option as having a number of different motivations. A great deal of criticism should be really placed on the, the responsibility on the failure of the forces of freedom of change central council. I would be remiss if I did not emphasize that they should have been aware and I'm sure that some were, that without expanding the participation, especially that would have been really important. Instead of first and foremost, going to civil society in Sudan, expanding their reach into civil society, and then uh, perhaps engaging with the international community, the forces of freedom of change and the politicians of that organization did the complete opposite. They first went to negotiate with the generals, and under the auspices of an international community, then they claimed that they were going to hold workshops to expand the constituency and support of uh, the framework agreement among Sudanese civil society. That was a historic fatal mistake. It is unlikely that Sudanese in their majority will likely forget it, uh, that you go first to the generals rather than to your own people who actually wage the revolution. This is not about schadenfreude, it's more central a reason that this framework agreement was doomed to fail. A lesson to be learned by not just Sudanese, but also all those activists who are waging a struggle against these authoritarian regimes and regimes of injustice, that you rely on grassroots organizing and bottom-up organizing as opposed to those in power and outside powers. Since you mentioned the forces of freedom and change, this was a broad coalition of the opposition forces that took part in the uprising against al-Bashir's regime 
But after the October 2021 coup, there was a split within FCC or the Forces of Freedom and Change. How did these forces line up after the split? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The main split occurs after October 2021 from um, the what became known as the Forces of Freedom of Change Central Council and the Forces of Freedom of Change National Accord. Uh, the Forces of Freedom of Change uh, Central Council was the original coalition of groups and parties that uh, waged the revolution. The Forces of Freedom of Change National Accord essentially is dominated by members of the insurgent organizations, uh, the Justice and Equality Movement and the Sudan Liberation Army, Minawi Wing. These are the insurgent groups that I told you were included following the Juba Agreement. And they were the groups that basically, number one, tipped the balance towards the military rather than the civilians and led to basically weakening of Hamdok and the coup that was to come. They were also the ones that uh, helped prior to the coup of October 2021, uh, kind of instigated protests in support of Burhan, as opposed to the forces of freedom of change, in order to set the stage for a military coup, because they felt that they were going to be sidelined by a transition to civilian democracy. Following the coup of October 2021, they were concerned very, very centrally with a, a very important aspect of the framework agreement. And that was not only the issue of uh, security sector reform, but a stipulation on the part of the Forces of Freedom of Change Central Council that there has to be a review of the Juba Agreement. The review of the Juba Agreement would potentially exclude armed forces from inclusion in a transitional government. What that meant to the members of the Justice and Equality Movement and the Sudan Liberation Army, Manawi, was that their own uh, future in terms of their political ambitions, for example, uh, Jabril, the member of the Justice and Equality Movement, is currently the minister. As spoilers, they realized that if they actually did not split from the forces of freedom of change and uh, begin to operate more closely with Burhan, that they would actually lose out because there would be a review of the agreement and potentially, uh, most likely, they would be excluded from the transition government. Um, that was, of course, followed in January of 2023 by a parallel track in Egypt, where CC brought in these FCC National Accord members to Cairo to negotiate a parallel track. That, of course, was to weaken the framework agreement ongoing in Khartoum, but at the same time, it was to strengthen the side of Burhan and the military by increasing the strength and influence of those who split from the original forces of freedom of change. This set the stage uh, very much for the conflict of the national integration that was uh, really, really important because the timeline of integration of the paramilitary forces had very much to do with also integrating and demobilizing these two former insurgent organizations. Here you can see that the complication is that they felt uh, lose their political positioning, but in the context of the framework agreement, they would actually, and the stipulation of demobilizing the militia and integrating them into the national army, that they would lose their raison d'etre, that they would lose also their very existence. And this is why they very much supported Burhan in this fight. Khaled, moving away from the generals and the political elite, Sudan's resistance committees have mobilized to provide shelter to the displaced rehabilitate hospitals and save lives in the midst of this military and brutal conflict. In addition to medical care, they have coordinated evacuations for besieged civilians and spread anti-war messaging. You mentioned these neighborhood committees that emerged during the 2019 uprising against the regime. 
and the 2021 coup and how they adhere to these three noses slogan. What can you tell us about these committees and how popular are they? First of all, their legitimacy in, in Sudanese civil society is really unparalleled and unprecedented. And what you're seeing now, resistance committees are not only volunteering, they're forming once again volunteer networks across the entire city to help with supplying medicines uh, using mobile phones, social media, informal networks of trust, of course, in the neighborhoods to provide medicines to those in need, to provide food to those in need, to transport people if they want to flee the city. They are also engaged uh, in securing safe passage for foreigners because foreigners can't leave even to get to get evacuated in the Red Sea or through the Western military planes, for example. They're doing that for foreigners because that's their ethic. Another aspect is that they're returned uh, to their original formation, and that is a voluntary neighborhood organization. And that is really how they began. It was only, of course, in the context of the revolution that they transformed from voluntary care providers, social delivery networks into resistance committees. That was, of course, the logical outcome of their legitimacy popularity in their own neighborhoods first. So they're going back to the drawing board. They're insisting that without a consciousness, uh, without a network of solidarity, without a vision, a consciousness that tries to prevent fragmentation, and complete destruction of the country and the capital, no political positioning can actually succeed. In terms of their popularity, I think that there is a, something in terms of it being interviewed constantly, which I'm fortunate and privileged to do about Sudan, uh, with an emphasis on the kind of the so-called battle between two generals as the headline. That, of course, um, sometimes um, purposefully and sometimes accidentally obscures the real story here of Sudanese politics. And that is not the framework agreement, but actually the consensus that was built through the resistance committee's consensus building, forging what uh, they formed, was, which was a political charter. In late 2021, something very important happened that I'd like to emphasize, Shahram, and that is the negotiations and deliberations over two charters that were supposed to be guidelines and drafts for a preliminary constitution to oversee the country to a transition of civilian democracy. One of them was called the Revolutionary Charter for the People's Power, and that was forged and established in the city of Medani in the middle central uh, province of Jazeera. And the other was called the Charter for the Establishment of the People's Authority that was established by the resistance committees in Khartoum. It took some time because these are charters that were conducted through the consensus of the community and, of course, the resistance committee. But on April 2022, something very important happened. All of the resistance committees, 55 resistance committees across 14 out of 18 states in Sudan came together and unified their charters under a charter entitled the Revolutionary Charter for the Establishment of People's Authority. This is the revolutionary charter that outlines something that was taken, almost <laughs> copied from aspects of the framework agreement or rather vice versa, and that is issues of security sector reform, transitional justice, the dismantling of remnants of the regime, issues of accountability and economic policy. What actually distinguished this charter was, number one, a clear preamble about the legacy of the previous regime, but also 
the historical problems of actually establishing democracy in the country, including references to the colonial period. But importantly, that was really important. Another was a real kind of foregrounding that the military and the generals must step out of the political scene and there should not be negotiations with them and clear guidelines in terms of how to establish a legislative council that would oversee not only eventual elections, but the appointment of a prime minister who then would form a civilian cabinet. Guidelines that really, really important that were not taken seriously by both, uh, of course, the, some of the, the civilian politicians, the FFC, but also the international community in terms of their inclusion. To simplify matters, to answer your questions of their legitimacy, the central goal of the resistance committee as a uh, the slogan of the military to the barracks and the militia must be demobilized, al-militiatat in Arabic, is actually not only the consensus of the majority of Sudanese people, it actually is the central principle of the framework agreement. In other words, the popularity of the slogan and that objective is one that is so popular that both Hemeti and Burhan had to gesture to it. They had to essentially agree to it in writing. The framework agreement's ultimate objective actually is to have a security council where it is where the army has, of course, their defense council, security council, but that would be under the oversight of a civilian prime minister. That central idea is the central idea of the resistance committees. And the fact that it was so central to the very essence and the primary objective of the framework agreement just gives you an idea of its sheer popularity among Sudanese civil society and Sudanese in general, that it had to be basically the founding principle of this framework agreement that fell apart for all of the reasons that I explained. The Sudanese Professional Association, SPA, was one of those civil society groups that played a decisive role in the mobilization that resulted in the unseating of Omar al-Bashir in 2019, as well as the opposition to the 2021 coup. Where does SPA stand with respect to the political turmoil in Sudan today? Well, the Sudanese Professional Association uh, stands with the resistance committees today. And that occurred after the coup. Prior to that, there was no question there was a co-optation of the Sudanese Professional Association by the forces of freedom of change and their politicians. But most importantly, although the Sudanese Professional Association was uh, criticized a great deal for their lack of input participation and maybe solidarity, with the resistance committee. I know them well and interviewed them, of course, and they felt that their role was being service providers and to as a coordinating body between actually the political parties and the resistance committees. I think uh, the Sudanese Professional Association now, because of this conflict, has returned to its original orientation. It has taken itself away from politics. It has refused to participate with the Forces of Freedom of Change Framework Agreement. This is the original structure and organization of the Sudanese Professional Association. There are a branch that did participate in the negotiations as individuals, but the Sudanese Professional Association has returned now to being a coordinating body. If you see in Sudan, for example, not only the resistance committees, but individuals in the hospitals who are volunteering to save lives in Sudan, that is really important. Unfortunately and tragically, yesterday, one of the main members and most respected doctor from the Sudanese Professional Association was stabbed several times to his death. 
and um, the Sudanese across the board, even myself, it represented not only an attack against the Sudanese Professional Association, but against the very kind of ethic that the SPA has, and that is to provide service delivery on a voluntary basis to as many people as possible and to organize healthcare providers in this case. So in that sense, they've returned to their cooperations with the resistance committees working in tandem, just like they did during the revolution. It's unfortunate they had to learn this lesson. In other words, they were co-opted in some part, uh, participating in the politics, let's say, some would say, but they have now turned to their original role as a coordinating body working in tandem with the resistance committees in service provision. Going back to this issue of the economy, the officials responsible for a task force appointed to dismantle Bashir's system of wealth and patronage were imprisoned after the October 2021 coup. This was a task force which ordered the dismissals and confiscation of assets linked to the National Congress Party. What happened to this task force and its members? Were they released from jail? And what do we know about its findings? Yeah, that's a really important uh, question. The committee to dismantle the remnants of um, the former regime uh, was, of course, a central demand of the revolution, and it was central to the establishment of the forces of freedom of change, the declaration of the forces of freedom of change that uh, was um, established or put forth in January of 2020 that really formed the forces of freedom of change. Central to that was this remarkable understanding of Sudan's history and political economy that I haven't seen in other contexts. And that is the stipulation that a committee must be constructed and established to review to dismantle the economic institutions of the former regime. What happened was obstruction, in a word. In the context of the Hamdok tenure, the civilian prime minister, there was, by all accounts, a very successful effort to dismantle these institutions. The problem was, at the time, the ministry was very much linked. The minister was appointed to the minister of finance, was very much under the oversight of the military and the military uh, sovereign council and, and Burhan. And um, he was very much linked to the Islamist movement themselves. And so the very ministry that was supposed to actually review and assist with the recovery of these assets and the dismantling that was central to the revolution would obstruct as much as possible any efforts uh, to do so. But nevertheless, the success of this committee really was one of its problems in the sense that they began to expose some of the most influential, particularly Islamist and military leaders, and their operations and their assets, both domestically and internationally. That posed a great threat to Orhan and the Islamist movements, and certainly the National Congress Party. So there was a great deal of um, conflict over not only not accepting the reports and uh, also obstructing the legal process when people were indicted and were supposed to go to court, that was really important. So the obstruction part was really, really important. Following the coup, of course, most of the members of the committee were imprisoned for a particular length of time. They were released prior to the discussions around the framework agreement, but they continued to be, without exception, opposed to the framework agreement and working with the generals. So they were not successful. Many would say that they did it too fast. The exposure and maybe they underestimated the remnants and the strength of the Islamists of the National Congress Party in the military. They underestimated how much they would be able to obstruct and also really fight this kind of process. I think it should have been done 
in a way that uh, would follow much more established institutions when institutions are more accountable. And also, it should have been conducted under the auspices of the international community. In this instance, I think that that exposure would have been helpful. Another aspect that led to the coup was that, uh, believe it or not, this may come as a surprise, that international institutions, financial institutions, were actually favorable. For their own reasons, we can get into that. But they were actually favorable in terms of supporting the dismantling of this kind of empire. From their perspective, it undermines the free market principles. It is uh, corrupt. And maybe it prevents uh, not only economic development, but economic reform and investment and all that. Nevertheless, there was pressure on those who are you know, remnants of the National Congress Party and the Islamist movements, not only by the committee itself and what they found, but also by the international community that was supporting these kind of efforts. I believe that, and it's not talked about very much, that a central reason for the one military coup and also the Juba agreement that came before to, that gave strength to the military was a central aspect to the decision to wage the coup of October 2021 and also very important as part of this latest decision to attack uh, Hemeti, whose fortunes, by the way, are also immense, but not part of the same kind of network as that of the deep state of the Islamist movement of the past. Dr. Khalid Mustafa Madani is Associate Professor of Political Science and Islamic Studies and chair of the African Studies Program at McGill University in Canada. He is the author of Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa. Please join us next week for the second part of this interview. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.